Sometimes we walk the road of life and we say, well, if life is good, then God is good. And if we're not careful, we end up thinking when life is hard, maybe God is not good. But hearing Anna Cindy reminds me that even when things aren't panning out the way that I had hoped they would have, even when we hit a dead end, even when life takes a hard left, it doesn't mean that God is being anything less than good. We might not understand how his goodness is being revealed, but God's character is unflinching even when my circumstances are hard to understand. So I just I want to pray a reminder of the goodness of God over those of us who walked into this room with heavy burdens and broken hearts. Let's pray together. Lord God, your word says that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid because your mercy and goodness are with us. Doesn't mean that we don't walk through those valleys. It means that when we walk through those valleys, you in your mercy allow us to do so with a firm understanding of your goodness. And Lord, I, I pray that your good heart would be made clear to those of us who are struggling this morning. That hope in you would ground us, confidence in you would anchor us in the midst of all of the chaos and concern. God, I pray that you would remind us that your desire is to see you as our protector, our defender, and shield. And our, our only responsibility is to hide in you, to choose you as refuge, to declare you as good. It's just a sheer act of our will, whether or not our minds understand it, our emotions would naturally drift towards that. Speak to us in these moments so that we might be changed as a result of an encounter with the living God who loves us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today we continue our series on OT Top Hits. This is our fourth of five weeks in the series, and we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah. So if you want a copy of the scriptures, do me a favor, raise your hand. The team will come down and distribute them. We will be looking at page 1,125. I was born in Chicago and spent the entirety of my childhood there, and as a result, by the time I was in middle school, I was a rabid Bears football fan. I still remember the sheer ecstasy surrounding their 1986 Super Bowl beatdown of the New England Patriots, something that they haven't been able to pull off since. Now, it wasn't just the athletes that inspired me. It was their larger-than-life coach, the stuff of Saturday Night Live legend, Mike Ditka. Now, not long after the big win, I was with my family for an evening in downtown Chicago. And as we were walking to our car under the streetlights of Chicago's Loop, a stocky figure emerged from the shadows of a restaurant entryway with some friends, and it took a moment for it to sink in 
But in a millisecond of sheer awe, I realized that it was, in fact, Ditka. I was in the presence of a hero and an icon. I struggled to maintain my adolescent composure, but I could not miss this chance at an autograph. So I went to my dad and I said, give me a pen and a paper. And the only writing utensil that he had was a red pen. And the only paper he had access to was a deposit slip from his checkbook. So trembling, I approached the coach and I said, Coach Ditka, will you please sign this? He looked at the deposit slip, he looked down at me, and then an expression of sheer disgust said, you might as well have given me a piece of toilet paper. But toilet paper or not, he signed it. And I had a better story than anybody else to tell at my middle school cafeteria that Monday. My chance meeting with that coach, at least as a sixth grader, was a truly transcendent moment. It's not unlike worship. When you meet somebody who is other than you and greater than you, and you are transformed in the encounter. That's exactly what happens to the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, with it, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, Lord? This encounter, this exchange between an imperfect Isaiah and a perfect God helps me understand that any moment of truly transcendent worship will always compel us to look up, compel us to look in, and compel us to look out. So worship. Worship helps me to see God as he is. Worship maximizes my understanding of God's majesty. God is more powerful, more beautiful, more glorious than I had imagined him to be. And if you and I ever walk into a moment where corporate worship is about to happen, and we find ourselves saying, I think I've got this, then maybe we're missing the point of worship. 
I remember when I was younger, I walked into a, a kind of a theme park-esque restaurant, and over it, there was the, over the main entryway, there was the, kind of the tail end of a classic car, and on the license plate, this, it said, God is my co-pilot. In 1999, Kevin Smith directed a movie called Dogma, and in it, he kind of did a spoof on a church that had struggling attendance, and they decided that in order to kind of bring more people into their doors, they were just kind of rebrand Jesus a little bit to make him less scary and less depressing for the common audience, and they unveil this statue, and it's called the Buddy Christ, and there's Jesus with his thumb up, and he's kind of winking, and he looks warm and friendly and accessible. The German playwright, a guy by the name of Frank Vendekind, said this, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. Many of us, if we're going to be gut level honest, are uncomfortable with the idea of a holy God because it means that he is outside of us. He is bigger than us. He is greater than us. And many of us, what we like to do is we like to kind of turn down the holiness knob on God to get him a little bit closer to our level because the more I can make God like me, the more I can tell God how I want it to be done. That's not what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah steps into an experience that reminds him that God is holy other. God's completely different than he is. He says that he sees these angels, these beings that are mind-blowing, and he hears them sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts shook, and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The holy in this story is completely unending. Some scholars say that it's almost like there are two choirs of angels that just keep going back and forth. There's never a break in the expression of God's divine majesty or his holiness. Isaiah is having a moment of complete and total sensory overload. Every one of his five senses is engaged. He hears this word holy, so he's got this deafening sound of angelic choirs rotating over and over and over again. He has this, his eyes are engaged. He sees these angels who are so overwhelmed by the brilliance of God that they won't even look at him. And then he says what? He says that the train of God's robe filled the entire temple. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where a bride had like a really, really, really long train. Like you guys remember those royal weddings where they kind of like take the balcony shot and you can see Princess Di's gown going for like a hundred yards. Like it's the sign of something truly majestic. And he goes, God is so glorious that his train fills the whole room. Like it's one thing for a bride's gown to take up an aisle for it to like, there's no seats because the train is so big. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's like, visually, this is overwhelming. So I'm seeing this. I'm hearing this. I'm, I can smell the smoke. The I can feel the floor literally shaking. I don't know if anybody here has ever experienced an earthquake but there was a time where I was studying in Southern California and I was in the graduate school library and then all of a sudden I just felt, I felt the whole room shift about a quarter of an inch to the right. And initially I thought somebody had just dropped a very, very large book and I turned to the person at the study carol next to me and I go, did you feel that? And they're like, yeah, bro, that's, that's an earthquake. Welcome to Southern California. And I was like, I think somebody should be more alarmed than that, you know? But when you're like in grad school with surfers, they're like, hey, bro, it's all good. Um, when an earthquake happens, you are just dramatically reminded that you are not in control. And then finally, there's taste. What do we see here? That an angel actually touches his mouth 
with a burning coal. So he's got charcoal on his lips. Every single one of his five senses have been engaged. He is entirely overwhelmed in this moment. And I believe that true worship allows God to reveal himself to us as God says he is, not as we would have God be for our comfort or our agenda. Worship draws our eyes up. Worship also forces us in to take a moment of self-reflection. Worship helps me see me as God sees me. It clarifies my confession. And confession is simply saying what? When I confess, I am telling myself and God and anybody else who's listening what is true. Sometimes the truth is a beautiful truth. Sometimes it's a hard and brutal truth. But either way, it's the truth. And Isaiah has two confessions that he makes. One is, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen a perfect God. I'm going I'm to die. And then in verse 7, he says, an angel touches my mouth with this burning coal and says, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I believe that when anybody has an encounter with a holy God, their first words, their first confession is the confession of Isaiah. And that's this, I am ruined. I'm in trouble. Wrong has been done to me and I have done wrong to others. And as a result, I have created distance. I have created a chasm between me and God and between me and the people that I claim to love. That word ruined in Hebrew can mean cut off. And if you were an Israelite and you were cut off from God, it was a fate worse than death. And Isaiah says, this is it, I'm, do I'm done. It's all over. So for many of us, the first act of worship has to say, when I see God as holy, I am immediately revealed as less than holy. And when God is God and I realize that I'm not God, I have to take an honest and difficult look inward to say, where am I really? Why? Because God's holiness illuminates everything that is not good and right and true and pure. And authentic worship often reminds me I am not who I want to think that I am. I'm not who I want to think that I am. Which is why I was so grateful for Mike to be able to say, hey, before we come to the table of communion, let's pause for a moment of reflection. Let's take a second to kind of do a moral inventory of the last 24 hours, of the last week, or the last month since when I last came to this moment. And I, many times for me, worship is a chance where God in his grace says, Steve, there is something that's broken here. And until you acknowledge it, I can't fix it. Are you ready to tell yourself the truth? And when we say yes, God meets us. The first confession in worship is I am broken. But on the other side of that, when the angel comes and touches Isaiah's mouth with a coal, what's he doing? He's doing an act of miraculous and mystical healing. It's like he's giving him spiritual radiation that is reclaiming his mouth and his being. The sin that he confessed was the sin of his words, and God said, fine, I'm going to burn your mouth into goodness. We're going to consume everything that is toxic and cancerous and divisive in your speech. We're going to root it out, and we're going to start over again. We're going to reset the whole system. We're going to make it better than it was in the beginning. Isaiah was so paralyzed with fear when he admitted his uncleanliness that he couldn't move. So the angel came to him 
and purified his unclean lips, his guilt is washed away and his sin is canceled. What I love about worship, especially when we come to the Lord's table and celebrate the sacrament of communion, we are reminded that when we were paralyzed in our fear and our brokenness, when we could not take a step towards God, God did what? God stepped to us. God stepped to us. And the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of this kind of moment where an angel reaches out to Isaiah is a reminder to us that God cares about us so deeply that God went out of the way to bridge the gap that you and I could not bridge. And worship is not only an acknowledgement of who I'm not, worship is a celebration of who I am when I am reclaimed by the person of Jesus Christ. I can say I am redeemed. Worship doesn't just re reveal my need for God, it celebrates his unflinching grace. And when we acknowledge our brokenness, we are able to celebrate our redemption all the more. C.S. Lewis says, a person who admits no guilt can receive no mercy. So when you and I are like, God is filled with grace. Well, tell me about why you needed the, God, the grace of God. Well, I didn't need any. I'm good. But God is filled with grace for somebody else. That fails to wrap our hearts and brains and lives around the gift of God. And if you are a person who you feel like God is drawing you to take that next step to take a look inward, please, please come to celebrate recovery. It's an opportunity for you to say, I am stuck I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I used to be. I'm choking on my own hurts. I'm kind of drowning in some guilt or regret about things that I have done that I can't undo. I need somebody who can help me tell myself um, the difficult truth about me and the beautiful truth about God. If you haven't done that yet, please check that out. So even yesterday, in my own time with God, I was reading through Psalm 73. It reminded me about these two parts that when I, in worship, I go, yeah, God, I need you. And then I thank you that you meet me. He said this, I realized my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was foolish and ignorant. God, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, like less than human. Yet I still belong to you and you hold my right hand. Worship tells me who I was before Christ, who I am and who I am in Christ and who I will be in Christ. I am being renewed. I'm being reclaimed. I'm being restored. This is the good news of the gospel. One of my mentors, Jay Kessler, said, the beauty of God's word is that I'm not who I used to be, and the better news is that I'm not who I will one day become. Worship compels me to look up and see God. Worship compels me to look in and see myself. And then finally, worship compels me to look out. Worship helps me see the world as God sees it. Worship helps me see the world as God sees it. Now, when I see the world that I see it, or sometimes if I see the world that my friends see it, or the, the way that my family sees it, on our worst day and the world's worst day, what do we feel? We feel depressed. We feel ang anxious. We feel angst-ridden. We feel powerless. And as a result, we're not able to step into the redeeming work of God the way that Isaiah went, did when he said, oh, I I'll go, I'll go. God, God never says, hey, Isaiah, the world's really screwed up. Will you come to heaven and sit with us and bemoan the fact that the world is screwed up? That's not the task that Isaiah volunteers for. God says, the world is broken. I am actively redeeming it. Will you go with me? And Isaiah said, I'm game. Let's get this done. He says this, here I am, send me. Why? Because the heartbeat of heaven is mission. The heartbeat of heaven is mission. 
And God in community with himself as a trinity. And God with the company of angels says, let's mobilize all of the resources at our disposal to see people who have wandered away from God be restored to right relationship with him and people who have never tasted the goodness of God be invited into his family. These verses, this sermon that God gives Isaiah to preach resurfaces centuries later, over 700 years later, during Jesus' ministry. John 12 said that even after Jesus had performed so many signs in the presence of his countrymen, they would still not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, here's what he says in Isaiah 6, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now look at that for a second. Verse 41 said, Isaiah saw whose glory? Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Now Isaiah doesn't state that it's Jesus because the concept of Jesus has not been made clear to Isaiah as yet. But once he beheld the glory of Jesus in that moment, he is moved to tell the story of Jesus everywhere he goes. When you have had a life-transforming encounter with Christ, you will tell anyone who will listen and even some of those who won't. There is no beholding the glory without telling the story. There is no beholding the glory without telling the story. So why does God send Isaiah and Jesus to tell this story to people who won't listen? I think the answer is that God wants to increase the scope of people who hear the message. God wants to bring an entirely new audience to the table. So when I was in high school, some friends of mine, we were trying to live a Christ-honoring life, and as a result, we made a decision to maybe not go to some of the events that were a little bit more trendy, more socially acceptable to go to. And we said, you know what? We can throw parties too. We can throw different kind of parties. We can throw parties for the people who didn't get invited to the other parties. And so we kind of had this system where once a month we would have these, these parties, and we said, try to have our best version of good, clean fun, to just to try to announce to ourselves and the world that honoring Christ doesn't necessarily translate into a joyless, boring existence. So as a result, we would invite other kids from our school. And I remember there was this one girl who used to come, and for whatever reason, somebody had hurt her feelings, and she was too cool to come to our party that, that, that day. And so we said, hey, you want to come? And she's like, no. And then, like, later on that night, we saw she and her other friends, like, driving by the house, like, really slow. You ever have that? Like, people are like, oh, I'm too cool to go, but I still want to stick, st you know, I want to check out. I want to check it out from a distance. And I think that some of what God is saying here is he goes, there are some people who are going to reject the message. They're going to reject the invitation. So invite the next person. And when they come, there's going to be a little bit of healthy jealousy that gets sown in the heart of the person who rejected the first invitation. So God says, you can come. And they say, no, okay, you can come. And then they come. And then they get jealous that they went and they came. So rather than just having one group of people who showed up at the party, we have all of the groups of people who show up at the party. So God, it is just like mad scientist wisdom is saying, I'm going to allow one group of people to be temporarily resistant to the message so that all groups of people get to join me at the table. The mission of God is good for everyone, which is why I love the mission of Central to amplify hope and life to 
all. And when we say all, we mean all. And when we mean all, we say, God, will you stretch my heart to think about, care about, pray about, extend myself in hospitality to the people that I don't understand and maybe the people that I don't like yet? Will you expand my heart so that I care about the things that you care about and that my heart breaks over the things that break yours? When the Apostle Paul lands in Rome, he meets a group of Jewish leaders. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul went to his people first and when he failed to get traction, he turned to outsiders. And I would venture to say that the most of us who are gathered here in this room and who are watching on stream, that most of us are biologically non-Jewish. And we are here because Isaiah took his commitment to mission seriously, because Jesus took it seriously, and because Paul took it seriously. The kingdom of God needs to be inhabited with all stripes, flavors, and beliefs of people as long as they acknowledge Christ as redeemer and king. When we are faithful to the kind of worship that results in mission, others will come into the kingdom as well. So the point of worship is not for us to come into a room like this and get the songs that we want in the order that we want them in the style that we would prefer. The result of worship is not that I would walk out and say, oh, I really love that set list. That worked for me. The goal of worship is that people who were not part of the kingdom of God yesterday are a part of the kingdom of God tomorrow because we saw God as he is. We saw ourselves as God sees us and we cared about the world the way that God cares about it. And I believe that we are at a juncture in our nation's reality where people are losing faith in systems to save them. They're saying, you know what? I turned to pleasure to save me. It failed me. I turned to money to save me. It failed me. I turned to my government to save me, and it failed me. And you just go on and on down the list. Is it possible that there is a spiritual openness and hunger in our generation that has not existed in this way like it does right now? And as a result, people as a nation, as individuals and as families are saying, I am broken and I'm craving healing. Does anybody have a suggestion for me? And we say, I do. I do, I do, I do. And sometimes God, by his grace, will use discomfort to open our eyes, to open our ears and crack open our hearts to experience him in a way that we never could have, would have experienced that we would. Last Sunday... About 60 of you walked across this stage to declare your hope and confidence in Jesus Christ to get baptized. And because of your faithfulness, a handful of people between when this service ended and when the baptism began at the Holland State Park also decided that they wanted to be baptized. So I think our number was close to, it was in the 60s at the end of this service, and it was in the 70s by the time we got to the beach. By the time our service was over, do you know that random people who were just walking by were asking questions about what happened? And some of them said, what are you doing? 
He said, oh, we're baptizing people. Well, why do you baptize them? Because Jesus got a hold of their life. I want Jesus to get a hold of my life. Great, we can facilitate that. Would you like to get baptized? Yes. So we started the day with 60-some. We ended the day with 95 people getting baptized. Why? Because those of you who decided to get baptized said, I have beheld the glory of Christ. I cannot not tell my story. And when you told your story, other people came in. That is worship. So rather than me try to recapture all of the beauty of what happened a week ago, um, Paul and the rest of our creative team have put together a really amazing video snapshot. So let's worship God as we receive this gift together. Check this out.
You know what I love about that video is all the different kinds of people that were represented in those waters. Single people, married people, couples, families. People from European heritage, people from African heritage, people from, uh, from Latino backgrounds, people who, from Arabic backgrounds. Jesus said, I want to send you out to reach the nations. I think a lot of times we, in our understanding of the modern world, we hear nations and we read countries. But the word ethnos actually means, that Greek word ethnos, it gets translated in nations, it actually means people groups. It means tribes. And so you say, well, a country like the United States has more than one people group. A country like India has tons of people groups. And Jesus didn't just say, hey, I came from like 200 some countries. No, I came for thousands of tribes. Make no mistake, there are a myriad of tribes represented here in Western Michigan. And Jesus cares about all of them. And there's a part of me just in my limited faith and my little teeny tiny worldview that says, that was awesome. Let's do that next year. And I just had this real, just kind of subtle nudge from God that says, why would you wait for next year? Like, do we believe that God wants to have moments like this happen every single week? That God wants us in our small groups and us in our break rooms and us in our lunch rooms and us in our athletic fields to be talking, to be reaching out and pulling on the heartstring that somebody says, I don't know if anybody cares that I'm out here. And we could say, God does. Jesus Christ went to the cross with your name on his lips and he, your face on his brain. There's a hope and a future and a healing for you. Come with me. I want to facilitate an exchange between you and the almighty God. And sometimes I think that God's dream for what he wants to do in this place and through this network in our lifetime is far greater than what we can conceive of in our own imagination. So let's just take this song as, as a prayer and say, God, will you expand my vision of you, my understanding of myself and your redemptive work and your heart for the world so that I can be about the things that you're about. Let's respond to the Lord together in song. What a great picture. God, will, will you take that fire that you gave to Isaiah? Will you, give that, will you give that to me? Will you take my mind and my lips and my heart and my desires and my dreams and will you claim them and wash them with holy fire and use them for the things that you are about? Many times we've heard this passage to kind of amp people up for volunteering to service in foreign missions. Like, who, who will go for me? And we say, here am I, send me. A lot of times we forget, where does God send Isaiah exactly? He sends him home. Isaiah doesn't go to a different country. Isaiah goes right back to his own house, his own city, his own backyard. And God says, I am sending you to where you already are. Be all there now. So some of us are like, well, I don't know where God wants me to go. Is it possible that until God makes that crystal clear, God wants us to remain exactly where we have been placed. The only thing that changes is how we live where we are. And it's my prayer that our worship would drive us to live where we are with a heart for God, an understanding of our own identity, and a heart for the world. So my brothers and sisters of Central Wesleyan Church, may God ignite your heart anew and a rich with passion 
to see him as he is, to see you as he says you are, and to see the world as he desires it to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you haven't signed up for the, our community group, please do that in the lobby immediately following service. Congregational meeting is at 4 o'clock in the chapel. We hope to see you there. Thank you so much. God bless. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>